we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. It's Christmas, Theo. It's the time of miracles, so be of good cheer. Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast at the Center for Immigration Studies. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center and your host. And this is the last podcast of 2021. And so what I thought we would do is have some of our analysts give a roundup of what some of the top stories were and maybe also what some of the top stories might be next year. So we have with us Art Arthur, Jessica Vaughn, and Rob Law, who are going to be introducing some of the important things that happened in three different areas, the border issues, interior enforcement, and regulatory issues. Then, you know, we'll kind of throw it out to the group after each issue is kind of introduced and talk about what was important, what implications might be, that sort of thing. So, Art, why don't you start by uh, telling us what were the top things that happened at the border? That's obviously what everybody knows and everybody talks about, but what are a a few of the things that you think we should draw attention to? Well, thank you, Mark, and thank you for having me today. The biggest issue with the Southwest border in 2021 was, of course, the huge influx of illegal migration down there. For FY 2021, which ended on September the 31st, 1.659 million illegal migrants were apprehended by Border Patrol, which is the largest number of migrants who have ever been apprehended at the Southwest border in any year. That's exceptional for a number of reasons. One, is the fact that back in 2000, when we previously set a record, about 97% of all the migrants who were apprehended were single adult males, almost exclusively from Mexico. Last year, by contrast, 451,000 plus migrants who were apprehended at the southwest border were adults traveling with children in what are known as family units. That was 27.5%. 2% of the total. In addition, there were 145,000 unaccompanied alien children. That's far and away the largest number of unaccompanied alien children who have ever been apprehended. It's almost twice the prior record. And they represented about 8.75% of all of the apprehensions at the Southwest border. Most remarkably, but not surprisingly, 120,700 plus of those uh, unaccompanied alien children were not Mexican nationals. They were nationals of El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and even further afield. So we saw unprecedented illegal migration in FY 2021. Unfortunately, that has continued on into FY 2022, both October and November set new monthly records for apprehensions at the southwest border. Most troubling is the fact that in November, the number of migrants apprehended at the southwest border actually increased. This is a period of time in the year when we usually see illegal migration start to tail off as the Christmas holidays approach, and immigration normally picks up again in February. But the unabated immigration that we saw illegal immigration at the southwest border in FY 2021 has continued. Now, the Biden administration hasn't really done a whole lot to address, at least not of its own volition. Under court order, the Biden administration has reinstituted the Migrant Protection Protocols, also known as Remain in Mexico. That was a Trump-era policy that the Biden administration had ended or attempted to end, only to have federal courts step in and force it to reinvigorate the program, which the Biden administration has reluctantly done, subject to a number of exceptions and caveats. So uh, that really is probably the biggest story at the border, is the huge influx of migrants, particularly migrants who are not from 
directly south of the border, but further afield. Before throwing it to see if Jessica or Rob have any uh, thoughts or things to add, it occurred to me that the 2021 calendar year, nobody ever talks about that because the government operates on a fiscal year. I've never understood what the hell the point of that is, but it's likely to be the highest calendar year ever too, I assume, right? Because I mean, if you've got October and November, the highest of those months that we've ever had, December is likely to be one of the highest, if not the highest month. So 2021 is going to be the worst year at the southern border ever, period. Yeah, undoubtedly. Unfortunately, government uh, record keeping is also done on a fiscal year basis. So matching up year to year, going back before 2000, which is when CBP started putting together the monthly records, is going to be difficult. But it's beyond cavil that 2021, particularly if you start the clock on January the 20th, when Joe Biden uh, was sworn in as president, is going to be the worst year for illegal migration at the southwest border far and away. Any thoughts on any uh, aspects of that, uh, Rob or Jessica? Yeah, Jessica? Art, what do you expect the Biden administration to actually do about it? Do you think there are some things that they may try to implement, or are they just going to let it go and hope that nobody notices? That brings up another troubling aspect of this. The Biden administration largely eschews the fact that there is even a problem at the southwest border. Of course, they've refused to use the word crisis, but, you know, that's just simple semantics. More troubling is the fact that they have made a number of proposals. The center submitted a comment that ran more than 80 pages in response to a proposal by the Biden administration to give itself the authority to parole into the United States every illegal migrant apprehended at the southwest border for whom it does not have detention space. The Biden administration is actually asking for less detention space in 2022 than it had in 2021. So, well, I don't know that they hope it goes away on its own. The only logical conclusion that you can draw is that they don't really view illegal migration as a problem. They don't view it as a humanitarian problem for the migrants who are involved, although a bipartisan federal report back in 2019, talked about the trauma that children who are forced by their parents to enter the United States illegally suffer, not thinking about the criminality that it prompts south of the border, particularly in Mexico, where money that's paid to smugglers supplements the coffers of the cartels. The cartels control sections of the northern border of Mexico and demand what they call a piso or a tax for any illegal migrant who crosses over that border. And of course, there's the issue of corruption because smugglers pay off government officials to move migrants illegally through Mexico and countries further south. So they don't think about that as an issue. Yeah, but it seems to me that, I mean, Jessica's question is relevant, I think, but it also highlights something. In other words, what do they think is going to happen? And you're right that they don't think it's a problem. That's why I think those new asylum regs are key, because I think what they're hoping to do is if they can accelerate asylum, they're going to be giving asylum to just dramatically higher percentage of people. I mean, that's the goal. Basically, asylum for everybody who asks for it. So that if they do it right at the border, then there's, it's, there's, it's not an issue of whether they're going to show up for hearings. They get to say, look, it's all legal. What are you complaining about? They've all got asylum. They, what do you hate asylum? What are you, a Nazi? And I mean, I think that's the way they're going to think about it. It's not to reduce the flow. It's to relabel it so that they can point to it and say, this is all legitimate. What's your problem? I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, I mean, it seems to, to me that's going to be To legalize illegal immigration. Yes, to legalize illegal immigration. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. I mean, another way to look at it is that it's, you know, managing decline. They've admitted the fact that they don't have the ability to gain functional control of the southwest border, although operational control of the southwest border is a requirement in law, and that means not allowing any migrants to enter the United States illegally. In addition, and just to fill in parts of what Mark alluded to before, part of the Biden administration's proposal is to allow asylum officers to very quickly grant asylum to aliens who enter the United States illegally. And the Biden administration has already signaled that it wants to expand asylum eligibility to 
foreign nationals who have been subject to common criminality in their home countries. Now, that's not the asylum standard, and it's not the international standard, but it's one that they've indicated that they do want to follow. In addition, the Biden administration is also considering setting up what are called reception centers for illegal migrants at the southwest border. That certainly sounds welcoming. It's based on a system that is currently used in Switzerland and Germany and a couple of other European countries, and they're working in conjunction with the United Nations to do this. But see, that's that's my point, is that they're going to be setting up reception centers. It's not even going to be illegal because, you know, you can you show up at a port of entry, you say you want asylum, they send you to one of these government hotel campuses that they've set up for you, and, you know, everybody will get asylum, and then they'll be let go into the United States, and by definition, none of it will be illegal. There will still be some people sneaking across, but they'll say, look, Border Patrol apprehensions have declined dramatically because everybody's just allowed in. The apprehension numbers, you know, again, we don't know how they're going to massage them in the future, but they're still going to be evident. But the point that that you're making is a good one, and that is every one of these people is going to be, you know, who they already deem asylum seekers is going to become an asylum recipient. And once granted asylum, and this is important for people to understand, Aliens are placed on a five-year path to citizenship once they are granted asylum. The Biden administration wants to expedite that asylum grant system. They want to put it in the hands of asylum officers who have higher asylum grant numbers than immigration judges who currently have the job now. And they just want to move those people through the system and into the United States. Whether this is accepted or even noticed by the vast majority of the American people is a good question and one that I can't answer. It's kind of our job to make sure that they notice it. Absolutely. But the bigger issue is the national security and the law enforcement implications that this has. So there are only a very settled number of Border Patrol agents at the southwest border. There are fewer than 17,000 of them. And on the line at any given time, there are only about 5,500. So if Border Patrol agents have to go out and process those migrants and take them to these reception centers, that's going to take up a huge amount of the Border Patrol's bandwidth. That's going to leave the border open for contraband smugglers, drug smugglers to move drugs into the United States. Not to mention gotaways, because that's the other side of this, is that the people who are coming as families are one thing. We know that they're being released. It's the ones who are getting through who deliberately aren't walking up to the Border Patrol agents. Right. And we need to worry about that because the Border Patrol's capacity to detect them is compromised now. Absolutely. And there are about 400,000 gotaways estimated in FY 2021, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas admitted the fact that about 500,000 migrants who had entered illegally were released into the United States. You add those two numbers together, and that's 900,000 additional aliens who were admitted to the United States quasi-legally or illegally. You say that like it's a bad thing. (laughs) Well, it is a bad thing because, of course, there are limits on immigration for a very good reason. And that goes directly to the points that we're making. One of those reasons is to ensure that criminals do not enter the United States illegally. Of course, if you you go through legal channels, consular officers abroad are going to assess whether or not you've been convicted of any crimes in your home country or have a tendency toward criminality, and whether you were a terrorist or a threat to the national security of the United States. Given how easy the Biden administration has made it for migrants to enter the United States illegally, One has to really question why exactly 400,000 people would elude Border Patrol and come here illegally. We can assume that most of those individuals are single adult males who would be subject to pandemic-related orders issued by the Centers for Disease Control under Title 42 of the U.S. Code. And some of them, no doubt, criminals. That's a good segue to what I wanted Jessica to talk about, because the border issues obviously are extremely important, but, you know, that's in the news. Even people who are relatively not close followers of immigration news still know that there's some kind of disaster at the border, even if they don't know all of the details. But what's going on in the interior 
enforcement of immigration laws inside the country, these gotaways, for instance, who may be people who were deported before or in some other way are deportable, are criminals, they don't seem to be getting deported very often. And so I wanted Jessica to tell us a little bit about what's happened over the past year with regard to enforcement of immigration laws inside the country, away from the border. Thanks, Mark. Yes, one of the most important and frankly undercovered developments uh, the last, what, nine months under the Biden administration has been the near abolition of immigration enforcement in the interior. It's far beyond anything that we have seen in prior administrations. The approach of the Biden team seems to be that until such time as they can get an amnesty enacted for the 12 million or so illegal aliens living here now, they're going to remove as few people as possible, even if those people are breaking other laws and causing problems in their community. It literally is no longer illegal to be here illegally, or I should say it, it is still illegal, but the Biden administration is acting as if it isn't and would like people to believe that it's no longer illegal to be here illegally. Biden has imposed very strict guidelines on enforcement officers, both ICE and CBP. They're only supposed to take action against known and suspected terrorists, which we hope that there are very few, but there's still, you know, that's not a large number of people for these huge government agencies to be focusing on. They're not supposed to act on just anyone who has a criminal record, only serious felons. And they're supposed to be allowed to remove recent border crossers, although we don't see that very large numbers of recent border crosses are actually being removed from the country. So they've really narrowed the range of types of cases that ICE officers can pursue. And they've also created a process to gum up the works and make it more time-consuming and difficult for ICE officers to get approval for other kinds of arrests. And these are arrests of people that Congress has already authorized them to make, but the Biden administration has said, no, you're going to have to ask permission and to do it in this very cumbersome way. And they've also limited where and how ICE officers can make arrests in the interior that they expanded on the concept of arrests in sensitive locations that cover huge swaths of our communities where illegal aliens and criminal aliens are likely to actually be. And we had posted a map that one of our colleagues had put together, John Fury did, of these sensitive locations just in like a section of Washington, D.C., from the White House west to Georgetown. And Basically, he did a little circle around each of these sensitive locations, and the whole thing was red, basically. It was all, in other words, there was like little areas and a few median strips where theoretically ICE was allowed to enforce the law. But basically, it, the point was to create a kind of sanctuary country right, uh, right. where regardless of local policies, ICE isn't allowed to really do anything. Right, because normally ICE would be making most of its arrests in the jails of criminal aliens that they have found through um, very effective information sharing programs. But now the process for asking for permission to get an arrest and doing all the write-up of someone's background that's required to get that permission, most of these criminals are already back on the streets. So they have to go out into the community to make arrests. And where they can do that is very limited. So the idea is that, you know, they're making it so time-consuming and expensive and difficult to make arrests of illegal aliens, even criminal aliens, that there's much less of it. And they've suppressed partnerships with local law enforcement agencies also to reduce the number. And so the result is very concerning. And we've actually measured the result. There's been a major decline in deportations as a direct result of Biden's policies. The number of people being removed from the country should be trending back up from the decline in enforcement that we had during the pandemic. But instead, under the first five months of Biden administration policies, the number of removals has dropped 80% from the same time period last year. 
and it's dropped 90% since a more normal year of 2019. And we know that through FOIA requests that we've made to get records from ICE. So ICE is probably going to make less than 70,000 deportations this year, where it should be making three to 400,000. Right, right. Any thoughts on that, the gentleman? Yeah, Rob? Uh, yeah, Jessica, it certainly sounds like the Biden administration has effectively abolished ICE without so explicitly uh, doing so. But my question for you is a, a lot of the, the push on exempting categories of illegal aliens from enforcement and sanctuary and safe haven locations is this claim that immigrants or probably more broadly illegal aliens are less likely to report crime in their neighborhoods or against themselves because of their lack of immigration status. Anything uh, that you have to offer on, on that philosophy? Well, you're right. That is one of the most frequently mentioned justifications for sanctuary policies and for creating these safe havens and so on. But it turns out it's not actually true. Steve Camerata, our colleague, and I took a look at the data in the National Crime Victimization Survey, which is considered the most authoritative source on data on crime reporting. And in recent years, they've actually asked for the foreign-born status or citizenship of people who respond to this survey. So for the first time, we were able to study whether or not immigrants report crimes in any different rates than Americans do. And it turns out that immigrants report crimes at the same rate or sometimes even higher rates than native-born Americans, and that this is true across all types of crimes. It's true for women. It's true for recently arrived immigrants. So it really debunks this idea that law enforcement agencies should hesitate to work with ICE out of fear that immigrants will no longer trust them, will no longer report crimes. They do trust American police agencies and they are reporting crimes. So we shouldn't be afraid of interfering with relationships with immigrant communities out of some threat that ICE is going to deport them. And as it turns out, ICE isn't deporting very many people anyway. <laughs> so, and you know, I think the interesting thing is I think a lot of these sanctuary policy promoters are, they're not immigrants themselves for the most part. And so they, frankly, they're part of the anti-police left. They're hostile to the idea of law enforcement, period. This is just the area that they work in. And what they don't think of, I think, is that immigrants are comparing our police to the police in Honduras or in Ethiopia. And, you know, I've lived in the third world and the police here, you know, the worst police department is here is probably better than the best police department in much of the rest of the world. So immigrants are not comparing their experience and interaction with the police to something they learned in a seminar at Oberlin. They're comparing what they think of the police to their earlier interactions back in their home country with the police. And so, I mean, it seems to me perfectly obvious that they would not have some kind of unique distrust of American law enforcement just because when they arrest an immigrant criminal, ICE would know about it. I mean, it really is. It just doesn't stand. It's illogical. And the other thing that troubles me has been in my experience is that if immigrants do become afraid of reporting victimizations to police, it's usually because some advocacy group or activist or someone has told them they should be afraid, not right. based on any negative experiences they've had. And I find that really troubling, this narrative that's out there that they should be afraid to go to police. But so many of the Biden policies are based on this false narrative that Immigration enforcement is overly broad, overly zealous, targeting people who are not causing any harm. They're just here living their lives when, in fact, immigration enforcement is and always has been directed mostly at that small fraction of the immigrant population that's causing problems, committing crimes. So that when you go to scale back immigration enforcement, you end up reducing removals of serious criminals, the very people that immigrants are afraid of in their community who are victimizing them. 
And that's proved to be true in these deportation statistics that I examined. And we found that not only has the number of deportations dropped overall, but the number of deportations of criminals has been cut in half. So maybe the Biden guidelines mean that the percentage of removed aliens who are criminals is higher, like 32% of the people removed by Biden were serious criminals. But the number is so much less. What it means is ICE is being forced to leave essentially all these criminal aliens in the communities because they can't take action against them. Right. That's the real problem is they say they're doing this so that ICE can focus more on criminals when in fact they're off the hook too. The criminals are the ones who are protected by these policies. And that's who immigrants are afraid of in their communities, not the police. Art, did you have something? There was one particular aspect of the Biden administration's enforcement guidelines, the restrictions that they placed on ICE agents, it's particularly troubling. And that has to do with domestic violence. So on the one hand, the Biden administration wants to expand asylum eligibility for foreign nationals who have been subject to domestic violence in their own countries because the police won't protect them. On the other hand, the Biden administration has turned around in their most recent guidance issued by Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Secretary Mayorkas has directed ICE to take a hands-off approach with respect to aliens who have been convicted of or who have been accused of domestic violence. When I was an immigration judge, I would see a large number of domestic abusers, primarily males, in my courtroom. And some of those incidents of violence were, you know, truly shocking. And, you know, those individuals posed a danger to the community. If you are going to, you know, abuse the spouse or the mother of your child, that makes you a dangerous individual. You know, that's a person who is in a sensitive relationship with you. And if you are violent enough to carry out attacks on them, you are by definition a violent person. And more importantly, domestic violence, regrettably, is one of those crimes that's subject to repetition, much like drunk driving, which the Biden administration also won't remove people for. So, I mean, the irony is kind of interesting because what you're saying is that they want to expand asylum beyond what the law allows to grant protection to people fleeing basically violent boyfriends and husbands in the old country, but not deport the same violent husbands and boyfriends if they're beating up their girlfriends here in this country. Yeah. And I mean, it's shocking because the very thing that the Biden administration is implicitly accusing foreign countries of doing is what the Biden administration is explicitly doing in this context, that it smacks of eternalism doesn't even require mention. But, you know, this is this schizophrenic disconnect. The other thing is that, again, you know, we talk about crimes that are subject to repetition. Domestic violence is one. As I noted, drunk driving is another. Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana, who is the number four ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, actually offered an amendment to the amnesty proposal that's contained in the Build Back Better plan, the reconciliation plan that congressional Democrats are attempting to get passed on simple majority votes in the House and the Senate to bar aliens who have 10 or more drunk driving convictions. And that was actually voted down on a, a largely party line vote by Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee. So the idea that uh, none of these proposals that the Biden administration has will allow criminals to remain in the United States is a canard. It's false. And I think that all of this is part of progressive push, and I put progressive in air quotes there, to decriminalize some very serious criminal activity. We certainly see that at the border, where illegal migration is treated as, at best, an offense. And, you know, the attitude that many are taking with respect to criminality in the United States by aliens who were here is more of the same. And again, Jessica, it, it merits particular notice. Most of these crimes are committed on United States citizens or even, by and large, on lawful immigrants, although to a large degree, the latter category is affected. 
most of the people who aren't removed go back to immigrant communities and they commit their crimes in those immigrant communities. So if the whole idea is to keep immigrants safe in the United States, not removing criminal aliens is the worst way to do it. Right. But although I have to say, I think that's just their pretext for these policies. This is not about keeping anyone safer. These policies are about abolishing immigration enforcement. And since they can't enact an amnesty or they haven't figured out how to get it done yet, they're simply not moving on removable aliens in the country until such time as they can get them work permits, status, So that they don't get deported before the amnesty happens is basically what it amounts to. So let's segue to the um, third umbrella area to talk about what happened over the past year. And that's basically the regulatory arena most broadly described. And Rob Rob Law is going to talk about that. Rob? Great. Thanks, Mark. And uh, thanks to Art for stealing my thunder on the asylum jurisdiction reg. I'll go a little bit briefer on, on that one. But for the executive branch, regulations are governed by a very specific process spelled out under the Administrative Procedure Act, or APA for short. And it requires giving the public an opportunity to weigh in for or against a proposed policy before it can be finalized. Now, the regs are considered a gold standard because it's a very hard process to rescind those as you have to propose getting rid of it, hear the public feedback before it gets off the books. Whereas regular policies, which are basically written on a napkin or piece of paper, can kind of be ripped up the second you have a new administration. So unsurprisingly, the Biden administration, they've acted very quickly to reverse numerous Trump administration policies, but they've been pretty slow using the rulemaking process. But that doesn't mean that they haven't upended Trump era regulations. And the reason is that the Biden administration has found a new side door that never existed before to end final regulations by simply refusing to defend them in court. They've allowed judges to nullify the rules, basically nullify the APA requirements, really short-circuiting the entire process, which means that the years that were put into the Trump administration defining public charge, ground of inadmissibility, first regulation ever to do so, was nixed just by the stroke of one judge's pen. Same with an H-1B rule, which would have replaced the lottery with a merit-based selection process. At first, the Biden administration delayed the implementation date, claiming that it was for the ability to operationalize it so they could actually run the new system properly. And they were defending that regulation in court for many months. And then just recently, they decided I guess they received enough criticism from the advocates of cheap foreign labor and said, we will stop defending this regulation. And yet another one has been basically wiped off the books without utilizing the same rulemaking process that we utilized in the Trump administration to establish those. And so in total, the center has submitted six comments this year on Biden administration regulatory actions, but only two of them reflect substantive proposals to change immigration law. The first one being the asylum rule, which, as Art noted, was grossly illegal. USCIS does not have the authority to hear these claims and is clearly being done just to take away the authority from immigration judges to USCIS Asylum Corps, who will just grant asylum regardless of what the law is. And then the second regulation is on DACA, which, of course, DACA 2012 policy memo, three pages This entire executive amnesty program was brought to life by Janet Napolitano, who was the Department of Homeland Security secretary at the time. Various tortured history in the courts about, is this lawful? Is this unlawful? What's the proper way to rescind it? And the Biden administration on day one said they wanted to, quote unquote, fortify DACA. I'm not really explaining what that meant. But then over the summer, you had a federal district judge in Texas, Judge Andrew Hanen, who finally ruled on the merits beyond procedural stuff, beyond standing. Judge Hanen very clearly ruled that DACA is a violation of immigration law, not just an APA violation, meaning going the policy route was wrong, but a regulation, it would be okay. He said DACA is a substantive immigration law violation, which means that even doing the reg process uh, could not cure 
the flaws of, of DACA. And yet, in spite of that, the Biden administration put forward a proposed rule to basically reinstitute DACA as a reg and pretty flippantly wrote in the rule that although there is an injunction saying that this is unlawful, we just disagree respectfully, as if respectfully disagreeing is now covered to move ahead. So I'm going to be very curious to see what happens with that. Does Judge Hainan take actions in the form of sanctions? Uh, what is the court's history going to be on DACA going forward? But beyond that, the other thing the Biden administration has started to do is really non-substantive regulatory proposals called advanced notice of proposed rulemakings or request for public input. They're two different acronyms, but effectively they're crowdsourcing ideas for how to propose rules on a couple of different topics. And I interpret those as being the Biden administration doesn't actually have a vision on these topics. And so they are passing off their responsibility mainly to the immigration bar and AILA and, and those types to basically be told what they should be doing. And I think that you'll continue to see more of that. And then the NPRMs, the proposed rules, will start to come out more frequently once, once they've been told what to do from, I, I guess, the real puppet masters in the immigration space, which is the, the immigration bar. Yeah, what I thought was actually most interesting is really kind of in what you were saying and what we've seen in this area is a hangover from what we saw under the Trump administration, which is the courts basically setting immigration policy, even at the granular level you're talking about, because, you know, there were universal injunctions, attempts to stop everything Biden was doing. And this idea that they were going to no longer defend the policies when they're lawsuits, it really is sort of a version of that sue and settle idea where an administration has its allies outside the administration sue it, and then it comes to a settlement to enact a policy that would never be approved by Congress. And, you know, it would be hard to justify as a regulation. I don't know. It's, it seems to me kind of in, uh, insidious. And even if, in other words, it's an aspect of the problem of the administrative state that I think people often don't think about. Any thoughts on any of this, Jessica or Art? Yeah, I'm curious, Rob, what you think is next for not just DACA, but do you think that the administration is likely to try other administrative tools or exploit other authorities that they might have? Like, what about work permits, TPS, all those things? What do you see happening with those areas of law? Yeah, I mean, you're certainly right that the Biden administration is trying to utilize every tool that they perceive to have to protect from removal and affirmatively provide work permits to many legal aliens as possible. They were very aggressive in using TPS throughout this year, temporary protected status, which, as Mark has uh, said, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary immigration program. And through TPS, the Biden administration has made new grants of TPS for countries who were never covered before, as well as extended old grants with a caveat that they have then moved up the eligibility date. So the whole premise of TPS is you were supposed to be here before the horrific event occurred in your home country, and but for that, you could be returned home. Well, by pushing the date beyond when the horrific event occurred in your home country, you're now capturing the population who subsequently left after the fact, which is you know completely contrary to how TPS is, is structured and, and thought of. It, it's under a, a very bogus legal philosophy that they call redesignation, but that term does not appear anywhere in Section 244 of the INA. So they did that with Haitians, Somalia? A whole bunch of them. Yeah, Haiti, they did that with, I also believe it with Syria, Yemen, quite a few, as well as new designations for a few countries as well, most notably Venezuela, which in and of itself was almost half a million people. Yeah, that's a lot of people. Which was pretty remarkable. I think in total, you're getting almost about eight or 900,000 illegal aliens who are now basically here permanently with a work permit under TPS designation. 
it's no wonder people continue to try to get visas from those countries because they know if they get here, their chances of ultimately benefiting from something like this, you know, besides the fact that nobody's attempting to remove them. Do you have something to say, Art? I think that it's important to note at this point, as Rob had alluded to, the role of the courts. Under the Trump administration, there were any number of conservatives who decried activist judges who interfered in various immigration proposals and policies that the Trump administration had attempted to institute. We certainly saw that. I think there were upwards of 20 separate injunctions against various immigration policies that Trump had either instituted or proposed. But it's also interesting to note the fact that we are seeing more and more judges who are stepping in to enjoin the Biden administration proposals, certainly with respect to DACA, Judge Andrew Hannon in Texas found the Obama administration's iteration of DACA was both a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act because it didn't comply with the notice and comment rulemaking, and also that it was a substantive violation because it ran counter to the Immigration and Nationality Act to grant benefits to large numbers of individuals Congress said that should be removed. We certainly see the same dynamic in effect with respect to Biden's enforcement policies. Judge Matthew Kaczmarek in Texas had enjoined the Biden administration's attempt to end Remain in Mexico, as I alluded to before, in a uh, rather well-reasoned opinion. And of course, the Biden administration went to the Fifth Circuit to get a stay. They didn't get, and they went to the Supreme Court that they didn't get. And now that that case has been returned to the Fifth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit actually issued a stinging rebuke of the Biden administration's border efforts in a decision that was issued in December that talked about the fact that the Biden administration really doesn't have the ability to simply ignore the law, but it has to apply the law until the Immigration and Nationality Act has changed. So, you know, with respect to those conservative complaints that we heard, and, you know, DACA was one of those things that the Supreme Court refused to allow the Trump administration to end. That case, which is DHS versus Regents of the University of California, has boomeranged on immigrant advocates because Regents is one of those cases that you inevitably see cited as these courts consider various Biden administration rollbacks of immigration enforcement. In fact, I think in the Fifth Circuit decision from reviewing Judge Kaczmarek's order, Regents was cited 30 different times. So, in other words, essentially, the left sort of created a monster, and now it's coming back to bite them in limiting their own freedom of action. Yeah, to quote Hamlet, they've been hoist on their own petard with respect to what they had viewed at the time as good case law. Another time, Art, you can tell us what a petard is, but I'll have uh, that'll be another <laughs> show. You know, it really, it does seem to me that the thing that ties all of this together, all of the different aspects that we've seen over the past year, is that. The Biden administration, and I got to say, it's not just them. This is also the corporate and libertarian right. All of this is part of a broader push to essentially abolish immigration limits. In other words, the goal here, it's not really open borders, which I think is, it's not a misnomer really. I mean, I, that's the term that people use, but I think a more accurate one is unlimited immigration. The administration has basically said, and the Obama administration kind of took this position too, but not as nakedly, that they have the right to let in anyone they want from abroad, period, regardless of what Congress has spelled out, that they can use parole or other means to either let in or legalize and give work permits and social security numbers to anyone they want, and they don't have to deport anyone they don't want to deport, period. That's what you see as the underlying premise of the Biden administration's immigration approach. And that, I think, is where the debate has to persist into next year. As opposed to what the Constitution says, which is that Congress has right. the authority exactly. to. Exactly. So what I wanted to do is sort of get from each of you for next year, prediction or a thought about what is likely to be maybe the biggest story or the most important concern. Basically, look through your crystal ball for the next 12 months and pick something 
that you think is worth noting, maybe people won't see or wouldn't have thought of, and you'll get a prize next year when we do this, if you were right. (laughs) Art, why don't you start? Yeah, actually, Mark, I think the one that's almost definitely going to occur is immigration is going to be a huge issue going into the midterm elections. And I think that thanks to redistricting and the fact that Democrats only have an eight-seat advantage in the House of Representatives today, that Democrats stand a very strong chance of losing the House of Representatives. Immigration has long been the weakest of the Biden administration's policies. Even back in February, it was polling in the 40s, and right now it's polling in the low 30s. And this is a very big issue and one that I think that a lot of voters are tying to the defund the police movement and things like that. In essence, they view the non-enforcement by the Biden administration as a defund ICE and defund Border Patrol at the southwest border. We're going to overwhelm them so much that they can't actually do any real enforcement. And I think that that would be a winning issue for Republicans headed into the midterm elections. Of course, Democrats could also lose the Senate. Now, the Republicans have a much more difficult path to follow in holding the Senate, but there are definitely opportunities in New Hampshire, in Nevada, in Georgia and in Arizona to pick up seats that are currently held by Democrats. Just to make clear, the center is a 501c3 nonprofit, doesn't get involved in electioneering. We're talking about analysis here of political matters. This is purely analysis, and it's important that you mention that, Mark, because there are advantages for both Republicans and Democrats with respect to the issue of immigration. Better to be a redeemed sinner than a righteous man. And the Biden administration does have the ability to change course on its immigration policies. And if they do that, I think that they will actually make gains in various congressional races. Or maybe minimize losses or something. So, Jessica, what are you looking at for next year that we should keep in mind? My prediction for 2022 is that there are going to be 25 state governments that are going to enact measures either through legislation or executive action that seek to limit illegal immigration to their states. And this is a is both a direct response to the Biden administration's disastrous policies and the huge effects that these policies have on these states, but also because they understand that voters, citizens, want more immigration control, and they are going to try to give it to them. This is along the lines of uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida wanting to pay to ship illegal aliens to Delaware and to Washington, No, D.C. no. Well, that is an entertaining one right. and, and an understandable one. But the more meaningful things that Governor DeSantis has done are to try to interrupt the flow of illegal aliens by disrupting smuggling networks, by going after the NGOs that make money facilitating it, by going after employers, by enabling law enforcement to do things. And what Texas has done, you know, trying to actually build some barriers. The other things will get headlines, but the latter variety of actions that I detailed will get results. Right. Interesting. So, Rob, what do you uh, what do you see in your crystal ball? Sure. Thanks, Mark. So our legal immigration system is fee funded as opposed to being appropriated, which is meaning taxpayer dollars that Congress doles out to fund the government. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services is required to put out new fees every two years, although they never have done so. And the Biden administration, again, refused to use the fee rule that the Trump administration had done, which actually just charged the proper cost of adjudication, the true cost. That's what the statutory obligation is. What I see happening this coming year is that the Biden administration will put out a new fee rule that will drastically cut the cost of green cards and citizenship. And in order to make up that difference, put a super premium on all employment-based immigration visas, both permanent as well as H-1Bs and possibly even H-2Bs. And I think what you're seeing is they will use the fee structure to impose policy preferences by 
their more favored populations and objectives will get a severely discounted rate and everybody else in the immigration system who's not as popular with the you know the Biden administration and their you know who they they hear from on the outside are going to bear the fiscal burden of of that that could have interesting political implications because the corporate interests are the ones who pay for all of the immigration lobbying the pro amnesty lobbying that isn't corporate related in other words there's a kind of alliance there and the people who use the H1Bs and the others that you're suggesting will see dramatically increased costs are the ones who are in this kind of uncomfortable alliance with the pro-amnesty radical groups. So, that, I mean, I, I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying it could have interesting political ramifications by creating kind of dissension among the two main wings of the um, anti-borders lobbying side. My prediction, I guess it's a prediction, will be that increasingly next year, asylum is going to be understood as one of the key weaknesses to immigration policy because it's an anachronistic policy to hold over from the end of World War II, beginning of the Cold War. It's now been an entire lifetime since the current asylum system was created by a UN treaty in 1951. And it's becoming increasingly clear both in Europe and here that asylum is the exception that is increasingly swallowing the entirety of immigration control. Because if someone says the words asylum, it doesn't matter what your public and your Congress voted for, your parliament voted for, they have some kind of right to come there. So I think we're going to see asylum move from being a kind of fringe niche specialty concern to move closer to the center of the immigration debate, as I think it should. Anyway, thanks to everybody, uh, to Art, Arthur, Jessica Vaughn, and Rob Law for participating in this year-end roundup. This will, of course, be on the internet, and the internet never forgets. So we'll see a year from now whether any of this actually happened. I'm confident that all of you will be more or less vindicated in your predictions. Are we going to accept comments from the public? Can they vote for which prediction? Oh, they that's interesting. No, I hadn't tr- thought. We don't have a mechanism for that. <laughs> we'll try that for next year's. Twitter is the one area I suppose you could do that. So uh, our Twitter handle for the center is C-I-S-O-R-G. Thank you all, and I'll see all of you next year. As I said, this is our last show of the year. Thank you for those of you who have been tuning in during our first year with this podcast. This has been an experiment for us, and I hope it's going well. If you are subscribing to this on one of the platforms that allows comments, please give us a five-star review. Or if not, just email us and tell us what you don't like. We're always looking for input. I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank all of our guests. And I especially want to thank our producer, Brian Griffith, who has made this a much more professional operation than any of us had any right to expect. I hope everybody has a good holiday and we will be back in the new year.